Okay. Um, I'm Marisa Lagos. I cover politics at KQED and co-host a weekly podcast uh, and show called Political Breakdown. Um, I think you're all political junkies here, so you'd probably enjoy it. We, uh, we try to get behind, you know, the, behind the people in politics and talk about their personalities. Kristen's been on the show before. It's super fun. Um, and so I'm really excited about this panel because these are honestly people I call all the time to make myself sound smart on the radio. Um, and uh, they all bring, I think, kind of a different interesting perspective here. Um, so Mindy Romero is director of the California Civic Engagement Project at USC. She was formerly at UC Davis. She studies all this stuff, so she really has a handle on the numbers. And um, today we're going to let her kind of open up the panel, giving us kind of laying some groundwork on that. Um, of course, you just met Lisa Garcia Padoya, who is, um, I think, also going to be able to give us kind of some of that context. Um, and then Kristen Olson is a former state assembly Republican leader, a Stanislaus County supervisor, um, and someone who I think has been very critical of her own party in recent years and months. Um, you know, as we've seen the changes happening nationally, and, and quite frankly, the problems that the GOP is having at the ballot box here. Um, Dan Schner. I think you were once a Republican, right? Long, long time ago. Long, long time ago. Long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> far, far away. Really? <laughs> he did work in politics, but we won't hold that against him. Um, he is currently director of the Sacramento Bee California Influencer Series. He actually ran for office himself, um, so he's got a nice holistic perspective as well. So thanks for being here. I'm going to sit down and you know make it like, like we all are just hanging out in our living room, because that's Perfect. totally what we do. Um, and yeah, I want to open it up with Mindy to kind of just give us like a brief sense of where we're at in California demographically and in that, you know, how it ties into the politics. Okay. Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, in our living room, huh? Well, I would have, yeah. well I'm dressed pretty comfortable. Well, I always tell people, it's like, well, if you're trying to explain this, you know, to your mom or something. Like. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, and, and I'm actually going to focus um, a little bit more on the recent turnout results. So. Great. Today we're all here to talk about the 2018 election, but to dissect it, right? To do the postmortem, um, and this is always a fantastic conference to have those conversations. A very important thing to talk about is turnout, not just the overall turnout for the population, which we all know was was very high um, in November, but how did it break out? Was it high for everybody, and particularly, specifically, uh, the question of representation? So usually, higher turnout means a more representative electorate meaning that you narrow the gap in turnout rates across race, ethnicity, age, and other groups. But was that the case? What did it actually look like? And what did it mean, bottom line, for representation? Did we become a more representative electorate? Um, because if you didn't know, right, um, well, I'll answer the question. The short of it is we're not a representative electorate, of course. Um, we have never been in California's um, history uh, or in any given election, whether it's high turnout or low turnout, we have a pool of actual voters that are participating, right? The voters in that election uh, is older, whiter, wealthier, better educated than the population as a whole, even, and also even just the eligible voter population as a whole. So, um, so really the question is, at any given election, if we have high turnout, did we close that gap? Did we become, if not fully representative, since we're not there yet, did we become more representative, less did we see less underrepresentation? Make sense? Okay, and that I'll talk about in just a moment. I'd, I'd like to set the stage a little bit more um, in terms of 2018. Um, and why this all matters, by the way, again, we're breaking out the, the election. But turnout and representation, we're talking about 
you know, the gubernatorial race in a little while and the, and the seven districts that were flipped by Democrats in another panel. But really, who were those voters? Were those voters making those decisions, selecting the elected officials that now are going to be representing all of us? Were they selected by a group of folks that were representative? Or at least, again, was at least a little bit better in terms of representation in the past? So um, to set the stage for 2018, uh, you all know this is a savvy group here every time we have this election or uh, this conference. But you know there was a lot of speculation going into t 2018 for both the primary and the general around what turnout would look like. Most of it geared around how would that impact what race? You know, would it um, have an impact in the battle for, for the control of Congress, that sort of thing. Um, but still, we uh, saw a lot of speculation, particularly around the Latino vote, the question around, you know, would there be a Trump effect? Um, a lot of speculation around the youth vote, particularly in the wake of the Parkland shooting. I know I fielded a lot of media calls, and I'm sure all of our panelists did, um, asking, you know, was this going to be the year of the youth vote? Was this going to be the year the Latinos could, act, could help flip the, um, districts in California or potentially elsewhere? Um, as I had those conversations, um, I said at least that there were a lot of good signs to say that, that this would be a good turnout year, and that would, should mean that it would be a good turnout year for underrepresented groups. Um, but I also was concerned about expectations. So we also, every election we have some sort of speculation, right, around is this going to be the year for Latinos or something like that. And, and expectations, how we set those, making sure that they're realistic, is very, very important. And when we look at comparable elections, so presidential to presidential or midterm to midterm, and we talk about high turnout or low turnout, we're typically only talking about a few percentage points difference between what is a high turnout or a low turnout, right? Most of you know that. And so... As I would talk to reporters, I would, you know, sometimes you would hear, or, or other folks that would ask me questions, sometimes you would hear that the level of expectation was just way beyond, right, what we, we'd all love, to, what we'd love to see, but probably what was very unlikely, right? Um, we'd have to see a record and then some. So, um, so that's, and and then not only was there speculation around the Trump effect and things like that, but we also had really high registration rates some of the highest registration rates we've seen in decades for a gubernatorial election, and of course the highest number, a record number of registrants in California. But at the same time, back to expectations, we also had continuing disparities in those registration rates. So whereas for the total population, we were nearly 80%, 78% going into the election, for the, and the rate is, registration rate is the percent of those who are eligible to register who actually are registered. Um, but Latinos, it was about 68%. For Asian Americans, it was about 57%. And these are numbers that we've calculated at my shop. Um, for youth, age 18 to 24, it was a little over 60%, the highest that I've ever seen it in terms of registration rate, so exciting. But still, a huge gap compared to that 78%. So even though we do have same-day voter registration, essentially, in California, um, there are limits to it, of course, and people are still learning that it exists. So essentially, we went into the election after the close of registration with a lot of people that couldn't register, right, or thought they couldn't register. Um, I'm sorry, they couldn't vote or thought they couldn't vote because they didn't know about same-day registration. So I wanted to set that stage. Um, so what did we see in 2018? So yes, it was a high year. You all know it was the highest eligible turnout rate since 1982. That's reported from the Secretary of State's office. We saw a lot of press around that. That's exciting. Um, that was actually 50%, if you don't know the specific number. Probably we want to all see more than that, but 50% eligible turnout rate, and this is the percent of those eligible to vote adult citizens who voted, is high, right, for a midterm year. 
for Latinos, and we just recently crunched these numbers. We have a report coming out that I'll go into more depth. I'll just give you a few numbers today to hopefully inform the conversation a little bit. Um, uh, but for Latinos, the, instead of 50%, it was 36% uh, eligible turnout rate, 33% for Asian Americans. Youth, 27%, 27.5% specifically, age 18 to 24. Now that might be disappointing, 27.5% for youth when there was a lot of speculation around youth, but again, we have to think about what, what the range of possibility is, right? What is a good year? Of course, we all want to push that range, but um, in 2014, which is a bad year to compare because it was a record low turnout year, only 31% of all registered, or sorry, eligible voters actually voted, but the youth number for age 18 to 24 in that election, a number that I mentioned here at the conference four years ago, well, at a different location, but um, was only 8%, only 8% of eligible youth in 2014 in that general election actually voted. 8%, yeah, wow, is, that was every time I gave so that So more number. than triple. So now mm -hmm. it's 27%. We expected progress. We knew we wouldn't be anywhere near, God, God at least we all hoped, we wouldn't be anywhere near those record low numbers, right, for the state. Um, everybody improved. Underrepresented groups improved. But let's talk about the percent of the vote. Let's go back to, did we get a more representative electorate, right? So gaps in turnout rates, and I won't go into the weeds, but the disparities in turnout rates help produce an electorate, right, where each group that has lower turnout rates has a lower share of all voters in that election, right? That doesn't match up to their share of the eligible voter population or the overall voter population. So in 2018, um, we did see some pretty good numbers. So youth, uh, sorry, Latinos, 36% eligible turnout rate, but 21% of the vote. In the 2016 presidential election, um, it was 22%. So we got close to a presidential year in terms of share of the vote. It was 15% in 2014. Now we also have some slight population uh, growth that's happened, right, obviously since 2016, but still. Um, for young people, they were 3% of all voters in, with that really low turnout rate, 3% of all voters in um, 2014. Um, and they were, or they are, they were a little over 7%, 7.2% in the November 2018 election. I wanna make sure I'm being clear on my elections. Um, so, so there's progress in terms of having an electorate, right, that um, there's been a share of the growth amongst under, underrepresented, but still significant disparities that remain. And I think I'll leave it there just for yeah. time. Um, and I know we're going to, hopefully yeah. at some point we'll also talk about some of the changes and what we might expect in the future too. Yeah, definitely. I want to get to that. Um, so Lisa, I know you have some numbers in front of you. Um, I'm curious if you, if you can sort of just put into context like your impressions of what, you know, this, these demographics and, you know, I think more broadly, um, you know, we've seen just the demographics of California change, right, in recent years and of course that impacts the electorate. Um, clearly it's still not as representative, but what what's your sense of how this has impacted the political parties, um, and, you know, both this year and looking forward because we're already in 2020 as we, <laughs> as we all know. I'm going to have a new Democratic candidate every day yes, for the next 365 days. Um, so as Marisa said, she asked me to talk about the parties. I, I wanted to provide a little bit of context, though. The first is that demography is not destiny, right? It is not automatically true that because I am a Latina, I'm a Democrat, right? If I am a Democrat, it's actually for historical and political reasons, right? It's not just because being a member of a certain group means you're going to vote in a particular kind of way. 
And in particular, you know, there was some discussion earlier after the November election that the changes, the 16-year-old pre-registration and the other changes that have been put into place to try to get more youth to vote were actually, you know, against the Republican Party. And just to say, if youth happen to vote Democratic, it's because the policies that those elected officials are advocating appeal to those youth. And the other party could, in fact, adopt policies that appeal to those youth, too. It's not automatic that people are going to vote in a particular kind of way. So when I talk about these differences, we have to appreciate that there are policy and political reasons why people um, are attaching themselves to parties in, in a particular way. But I think the bigger message, at least in California, is that there's a little bit of a pox on both their houses, as far as the electorate goes, of people being disenchanted with both. And I'm going to give you some numbers on that. Um, but just to give folks, I think a lot of people just don't realize, especially as we think about the work our county registrars do with every election, how many voters we have in California. So this is as of last night. I'm going to say I wanted to give you fresh data and not that I procrastinated to put these numbers together. But we have 19.9 million registered voters in the state of California. That is a massive, massive number of people that we have to deal with. Um, and and 6.5 million of them have registered since November 2016. So again, we also tend to treat voters as this kind of fixed static thing. But in fact, the voter file is changing all the time and it's shifting all the time, particularly with people who move a lot in immigrant communities. They're constantly coming in, going out, all those things. So just to appreciate, these are dynamic numbers that are going to move around. Um, but right now, overall, among all registered voters, you have a 19-point gap between Democrat and Republican registration. So basically, 43% of those 19.9 million people are registered Democrats. 24% are registered Republicans. We now have a situation where we have more people registered declined to state than Republicans in the state of California. So 28% of those are registered Republicans. But there are significant differences across groups. The other caveat I'm going to say, this is all data from Political Data Inc. They've been a tremendous uh, partner to us at IGS, and so they have very high quality data for California. But there are some problems with it. So I'm going to say who Latino voters are. I'm going to say what black voters registration looks like. But we have to know that those numbers are quite imperfect because it's all imputed, right? You don't put your race when you register to vote. And so they have to figure it out. Um, white for political data is not African-American, Asian, or black, which is not the most perfect measure. So all of what I'm saying has some caveats in terms of um, those things. But right now, the gap between Democratic and Republican registration in the state of California overall is 40 points among Latinos, 58 points among African-Americans, 19 points among Asians, and then nine among whites. Again, white being a very imperfect category. Um, but the most important thing, I think, is that you know, somewhere between 25 and 40% of people are declined to state. And so just don't choose either party. Looking at the people who've registered most recently, because I think that's really about what, what the change is, um, you've got a 22-point gap between Democrat and, and Republican registration among those 6.5 million people who registered since November of 2016. Um, the gap is slightly smaller for Latinos, Blacks, and Asian Americans, so 35 versus 40, just to talk about Latinos. And I don't want to throw around too many numbers, because I know, especially at this time of the day, it makes your eyes cross. Um, part of that large number of declined to state with new registrants may be due to the way that automatic voter registration works, which is a two-stage process. So if you go to the DMV and you get automatically registered, you have to proactively then go and choose a party. And you don't get asked that in the first round. And so it may be that many people who register just don't take that second stage. But this was already 
Decline the states were growing. No, it is growing. I'm just saying yeah. some piece yeah, totally. of that might be yeah. just that piece, but it is suggestive of you know when you've got basically 36% of the new registrants declined to state versus 40% choosing the Democratic Party. You know, California isn't blue or red. Maybe we should call it yellow or green, or I don't know what we're gonna. Well, green, I guess, mm. is a party, but you know, we should call it something else because most people, you know, a good, significant, and growing proportion of people aren't aligning themselves to either party. And I think that suggests possibility for movement if one party or the other starts to sort of think about how they talk about policy, what kinds of candidates they bring forward to actually change that dynamic. So I think, you know, we need to remember that. California was Reagan country in the 80s. Latinos were, you know, close to evenly split in terms of Democratic Republican in the early 90s, right? These are political and historical processes that are really about the positions that parties are taking. And so to appreciate that it's not fixed in time and there's some real concerns about people's attachment to both right now. So Dan, I want to talk to you as our no party preference uh, no, expert. I don't know, but you you know we've seen these numbers in, improve um, or increase over time, um, but we've also seen you know when you ran for Secretary of State as no party preference, um, you were unsuccessful. We saw Steve Poisoner fall short, who had the name ID, who had the money in the insurance commissioner race. Um, what does that tell you about? when you look at these numbers and kind of think about that, about these voters, because in the GOP, but we can get to that, but like, because I think there's a sense like, that, oh, well, they're no party preference, like maybe they skew one way or the other, but it's not a monolithic group in any way, right? Um, not in the slightest. And, I, and actually, um, if you look at the trajectory of the two races that you just cited, Marisa, um, in 2014, um, I drew 9% of the vote in a primary uh, against opponents of both parties. Um, last year, Steve Poisner drew 47% of the vote. Who's close? So the good news is, if you do the arithmetic, by the year 2022, the next no-party preference candidate ought to receive 85% of the vote in the state of California. <laughs> and while that's a little bit ambitious, you can come back to some of the obstacles for that. Before I go any further, though, um, I want to take a moment, uh, as Marisa did, um, to thank our host. I've been, had the privilege of being associated with the Institute of Governmental Studies um, for more than 20 years now. And Ethan and Lisa do an amazing job here in all sorts of ways. But one way in particular I want to point to is when I first came to one of these conferences in 1990, virtually every panelist on every panel was a white man. And when I sat down and on now the you're stage, outnumbered. <laughs> I realized I am happily outnumbered because I demographically represent the cohort of angry old white men in the state of California. <laughs> and I'll do my best to suppress. So we'll hold him responsible for everything. To suppress at least the anger for the uh, for the time being. But all joking aside, um, the institute not only does incredible work substantively but the fact that it has recognized the changing reality of California demography and politics, this panel here, is a testament to it. And I'm very pleased to be a token uh, on the panel <laughs> with, these, uh, with these four really, really smart people. But Dan, I have to interrupt. You do not represent the angry portion of that demographic, no. for sure. Get, hey, he's just getting started. <laughs> true. Let's see how that goes. Okay. <laughs> um, but all joking, I, I do want to get back to your question. Yeah. Um, 
There is a common misperception about independent voters, whether self-described, whether formally registered as no party preference here in California or declined to state elsewhere. And the common misperception is that independent is a synonym for moderate. Mm -hmm. right. So a couple of things. First of all, getting back to the angry thing, mm -hmm. I'm not moderate about anything. The reason I'm a no party preference voter is because I'm fiercely conservative on some issues and equally fiercely liberal on others. If anything, centrism is just sort of a, an average. But taking myself out of this <laughs> equation, um, most smart people in both parties will correctly point out to you that while there are a few centrist, moderates, whatever you want to call me, like me, wandering the NPP landscape, the overwhelming majority of independent voters are ideologically indistinguishable on a left-right spectrum mm -hmm. from traditional Democrats and traditional Republicans. The overwhelming majority of no party preference voters here and independent voters nationally are either just as liberal as most Democrats or just conservative as most Republicans, but there is, there is a really important ideological differentiator. It doesn't come on a left-right scale, but rather on an outside-in scale. What causes someone to register as an independent is not because they reject the two parties for being too liberal or too conservative. What causes someone to withdraw uh, from the two major parties is rather a hostility, an antipathy, and often an anger toward the two parties, toward politics as usual, toward government. And so you watch as, as we sit here on the eve of the Howard Schultz administration, that's a... <laughs> Um, and what's interesting to me about it um, is that he has, at least early on, staked his claim as an independent as a centrist. Now, there is some overlap. Some people are angry because one party is too liberal and the other party is too conservative. Um, but what will be interesting to me in watching Schultz go forward is, number one, does he not replace but pair that centrism with two things? Number one, a particular policy issue. As Ross Perot did many, many years ago, uh, emphasizing the federal deficit in a way that neither Democrats or Republicans of that era did. And number two, can he give voice to that hostility and, and, and to that anger? Um, I think, like I said, independents aren't independent because they're moderate. They're independent because they're dissatisfied. Right. And we'll see going forward whether Schultz or others can tap into the, that, that dissatisfaction. To date, ironically enough, the people who are most successful at tapping into that dissatisfaction and hostility come from the extremes of the two parties. Yeah. I and mean, we'll I think that's that the later, important point. But Bernie yeah. Sanders and Donald Trump, in all sorts of ways, um, tend to. There's a Venn diagram more, there, right? Well, <laughs> much more, probably a lot more in common than either one of them would care to admit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, I think that's a really important point, and I and I think I mean we could spend the hour talking about Howard Schultz and all the candidates, but I but I, I think that like that's something I'm watching too is just this idea that being a centrist, I mean both Trump and and Sanders, you know, <coughs> tapped into this populism and this anger and this dissatisfaction with both parties as well, even though they were running as you know representatives of each party, and I think that that. There, there's a sort of very small window there, but we don't have to go too very deep into that. Before Kristen takes, takes over just yeah. to that point, there's an old saying in politics that there's no such thing as a raging moderate. Right. And so no question what both Sanders and Trump did very adroitly 
is recognize that the greatest hostility and anger came from the basis mm -hmm. of the two parties, not to the center. It's not to say that it can't be done from the center, we'll see, but certainly right. yeah, Sanders and Trump demonstrated where that turf is most fertile. Well, that's actually a great segue to Kristen, because I think she's been very turned off by those far wings of um, both parties, but you know, you've been very vocal. Um, in, in a time where I think people have really retreated to their political corners way more, um, and so, you know, you wrote recently warned that the GOP in California is dying. And I think that, you know, the registration numbers are sobering, but the numbers in the state legislature are even worse right. for Republicans. Right. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what you mean by that and, and what you think the party should do? Is it an opening for a third party, which, you know, frankly, history doesn't show us that there's a lot of opportunity there? Or, or should the party sort of rise like a phoenix and rebuild itself? Yeah, great questions. And it seemed more simple in the aftermath of the election, actually, than it does today, because we've spent a lot of time hypothesizing about these issues and figuring out the path forward. And it just becomes more complex, not more simple. And so we could talk all day about that one particular question. But this is not something that took place overnight. The fact is, in the last two decades, Republican registration in California has declined by 12%. And it is, to some extent, tied to demographics. In those same uh, time periods of the last two decades, the white population in California has de declined by roughly the same percentage. So demographics are clearly having an impact on registration for better or for worse. Uh, I, I do agree with Lisa, though, that either party has an opportunity to present policy solutions and ideas and demonstrate a way to resonate with voters that can overcome demographics if they choose to do so. And the Republican Party in the last couple of decades has failed to adapt to those changing demographics, has failed to participate in outreach programs that build relationships with California's changing demographics, which has led to its decline. And then what we saw in the 2018 elections was, in my opinion, its ultimate death. I believe the party today is dead in California. In the California State Assembly, we have fewer Republicans. I wouldn't clap about that as a long-term <laughs> historical Republican who spent my whole adult life in it, but I get it. Uh, I get it. I'm just as frustrated. But um, we just saw the last member of the San Diego GOP right. delegation switch just parties. Just changed his registration Not to independent, to Democrat. Right, not to NPP, but to Democrat. Yeah. So we have fewer people serving in the California State Assembly today as Republicans than we've had since the 1800s. The 1800s. John Cox, you know, if you read things, you might hear from some individuals and organizations, John Cox performed better than all the California congressional candidates who lost their seats. Okay, that might be true, but he still got a fewer percentage of the vote than any other Republican gubernatorial candidate ever. <laughs> so that is not a positive to point to that if we're just right on the message, that we're going to succeed in elections. It's going to take a lot more than that. For a long time, um, many of us, or at least several of us, thought that we could demonstrate that California Republicans are different from the national brand. We thought we could rise above what I would consider a toxic national brand. 2016, 2014 and 2016, we actually had great success 
with that in 2016, Catherine Baker, some of you may be familiar with that name, she represented the East Bay area. She, as a Republican candidate up for re-election, beat Donald Trump's numbers by 29% on the exact same ballot as him in 2018, and she has been a very vocal opponent of many of Trump's behaviors and policies. She lost that race by a percent or two. And so that was probably the most graphic illustration that what we thought we could do, demonstrate that California Republicans are different, we simply weren't able to do in 2018. And I don't think in 2020 it's going to look much better. And so it does lead to the question then, where do we go from here? If the party in California is dead today, can it be rebuilt? Or is it time to look at another path? And I would argue the jury's still out. Uh, I am exploring both, as Marissa said, creating a new party or a new movement is a monumental task that's never been effectively done in the past. But if we look at the past, it's typically always centered around one individual or one particular policy issue. And so the question now is, are we at a unique time in history um, where we have a particular president who is dividing this country unlike anything I've ever seen before, a politically polarized environment where I believe the silent majority is part of the disaffected voting population that's frustrated with both parties, and at the same time, we have a growing no-party preference electorate that we don't see changing, we don't see that trajectory changing anytime soon. I call it the radical <coughs> middle, although I agree with Dan, middle doesn't necessarily imply centrist on ideology. Mm -hmm. It just means the middle, the vast majority of the middle, NPP voters, disaffected Republicans, disaffected Democrats, are hungry for leadership that presents real solutions to the real problems that are plaguing our communities, our state, and our nation. And they're not finding that leadership, at least today, in either party. And so if the movement toward a new party could be broad-based with a number of individuals from both parties and from the middle for sort of a multi-party effort, a trans-party effort, if the issues that they rally around and unify around were multiple, you know, three or four common values and policy priorities that they want to advance, and if there is a broad base of the donor community who can get behind that effort, there might be a path in California. I think it's too soon to tell, but many of us are, are looking to see, is there a path forward in that way where millions and millions and millions of Californians could feel represented again? Because I will tell you, there are many, I would argue most, who don't feel represented by the two parties today, one moving rightward and one moving leftward. The other option is to rebuild the party from the ground up. There is opportunity in crisis. The party, I have argued, is dead. The entire infrastructure at the California Republican Party will be changing at the end of February. The chairman is termed out. The staff is going to be changing. The executive director is leaving. The staff will be changing. And so there is potentially opportunity to rebuild if the party can wait out and outlast Donald Trump's presidency. I don't think there will be any opportunity as long as he's in the seat of the presidency. And if the number one issue is you have to acknowledge the problem. And it is mind-boggling to me how many activists in the Republican Party 
despite the 2018 election results, still do not want to acknowledge the problem that we're in. They want to double down on everything we've been doing, which has gotten worse and worse and worse election results over the last 20 years. And so if they can begin to acknowledge the problem, if they can begin to put individuals in place and spokespersons in place that can demonstrate they truly care about Californians in all regions of the state, from all demographics of the state, they can expose the problems that the current party in control has not dealt with yet and offer real solutions to those challenges, whether it's housing, homelessness, poverty, income inequality, et cetera. And they may be able to get on a path where they could become a viable second party again. And, and that's what I would argue Californians really need, is a viable two-party system where public policy outcomes best serve the greatest number of Californians in all regions of our state. Public policy outcomes are ultimately better when people of varying ideologies and perspectives have to work together to craft those policies. So that would be the goal I try to see or would like to see, and I think the jury's still out, whether that's through a new movement or a new party or whether it's through a rebuilding of the California Republican Party that moves to a very different place than it's been over the last 20, 30 years. Thanks, you guys. So um, I have a lot of questions, and I would love to make this conversation, so please jump in. This isn't. I mean, one thing that that made me think of, because I've watched the legislature for the past 10-plus years, is what, what does it mean to be a Democrat or Republican these days? And you mentioned Catherine Baker. Well, she voted more reliably Democratic than some Central Valley Democrats, right? Like, I, and I think what we saw in 2018 was a lot of, you know, those wobbler seats that Republicans have been able to hold in places like San Bernardino, Orange County, flip. But they're going to be up again in two more years, right? And so I just wonder, um, you know, to any of you, like, what, is it possible that we almost have a two-party system within the Democratic Party, at least legislatively? Because you do have this mod caucus and you know, business-backed Democrats who are really different than the ones who are coming from more liberal coastal areas. I think that's, I think that's a great question, Marisa. Yeah, the, 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 the standing joke is California is a two-party state. They're just both Democratic parties. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and in the state legislature, to differentiate from the good grassroots work that, that people like Kristen are doing, um, the dividing line you talked about is a, is, is a very stark one. I'll put it, yeah, Ace Smith, the smartest man in politics, is here today, so I'll put this in a Kamala Harris construct. Think of the two Democratic parties as one party that's excited about Kamala Harris but is concerned about positions on criminal justice issues, and one Democratic party that's excited about Kamala Harris but concerned about eliminating private insurance. Um, and a very progressive Democratic Party on both economic and social and cultural issues does dominate the legislature, primarily because of the lack of the ballast uh, from a partisan standpoint that Kristen was talking about. But to me, the most important thing that's happened in state politics over the last decade was, number one, the passage of the top two primary, and number two, the very smart decision of the California business community to aggressively recruit and support and fund Democrats who are very progressive on social and cultural issues, but more centrist or more pro-business on, on economic matters. And until the Republican Party accelerates the process that Kristen was talking about a moment ago, the biggest fights in Sacramento are between those, 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 those two Democratic groups. That said, it's a much more visible split. 
But in a two-party system, neither party is ever going to be ideologically uniform. Right. In Israel, in Italy, in any other place where you go where there are six, eight, ten, twelve or more parties, you have the luxury of being ideologically pristine. Any political party that's going to uh, accomplish 50% of the vote plus one on a regular basis needs to make room for both of those kinds of Democrats and will ultimately need to make room for those, both of those kinds of Republicans. Well, let me like, play devil's advocate a little bit. I mean, is, is that a bad thing entirely? Because what we saw during, say, your time in the legislature was a caucus that was really hard to manage for you because they were so obsessed with like a couple things, right? Like it was like no taxes ever. We won't go up on a budget vote, for example. Um, I don't know. Is there is there a positive to having you know a big tent party that is maybe more willing to cross you know some of those lines at different times? And I mean, we I, I think too. it's a positive if, and it's a big if. And I I think based on my experience. Uh, of the Democratic Party is they do a much better job of it than the Republican Party. I think it's a positive if there's a recognition and appreciation for the fact that there is a spectrum of ideas within one ideological party. So within the Republican Party, it should be okay and welcome that there is a spectrum of ideology from moderate to conservative on any number of the given issues. The problem is that historically with the Republican Party, they would rather have tension and factions over those ideological differences and kill and try to take out each other instead of when I was leader, I really worked to unify our caucus so that whether you were one of the mods or one of the conservatives, you were supporting each other because you recognized you're going to agree with each other more than 50% of the time and probably 80% of the time. And so give each other the space to be the individual elected Republican that they wanted to be. And, and we were effective at that for a couple of years. But usually, they'd rather attack each other than unify in, in becoming stronger and being the opposition and the contrast to the Democratic Party. In the Democratic Party, they have the same type of factions. They're a growing number of factions. Um, uh, one of them in particular told me after the elections he'd like to jump off a cliff right now rather than go to Democratic caucus meetings because he's just going to be so frustrated all the time. Um, but they tend to do a much better job, despite their ideological differences, of unifying in terms of opposing their Republican opponents from a policy and political perspective. And so I think it depends, but they are in a challenging times. You know, they have a three-quarters majority in the assembly, a two-thirds majority in the state senate. I wouldn't wish that upon any pro tem or speaker <laughs> when the number of factions within democratic ideology are growing between those who want to fight for civil rights and labor versus environmentalism, those from the San Joaquin Valley and in inland California versus coastal California. And I think the geographic differences that those in the Democratic caucuses are facing are becoming more prevalent, not less. And the last piece I'll add, similar to what Dan said about the business community seeking out candidates within the Democratic Party that they can support that are more pro-jobs, pro-business, I'm seeing now candidates who are thinking about running for state office who may have been Republican at one time or may be NPP at one time are going to run as Democratic candidates, even though historically their, their ideological positions might be more reflective of Republican philosophy, they feel they have a better electoral opportunity running on the Democratic ticket and then can represent their ideological positions within that caucus. 
we'll see if that ends up being a fruitful effort. But it's interesting to see yeah. that shift taking place. Well, I want to bring you guys back in. Do you, yeah, you want to? <coughs> Just one, one quick point on it before we get too far away from this conversation. Um, talking about uh, the no party preference, the growth in no party yeah. preference, which has been uh, slowly rising um, uh, the last decade or so um, in California. The thing about no party preference is voters that register as no party preference uh, vote in lower turnout number, uh, achieve lower turnout numbers. Is that because they're not being talked to as much? Well, yes. yeah, a lot of reasons. Bear with yes. me for a moment. Um, so yes. just, just to be clear, in any given election, typically uh, turnout, you know, not looking at anything else, just party affiliation, uh, voters that are registered as no party preference are going to have 10, 11 percentage points lower than those that are registered as Democrats or Republicans, and some variation there. Um, and yeah, it's because uh, I think there's a self-selection process, as we already talked a little bit, in terms of people feeling disconnected from the political process, and um, from political parties, I should say, specifically. And also, by definition, they're not, they're not signed up with a party, and they're not getting the contact and um, I mean. outreach and mobilization as much. And a lot of parties, of course, or a lot of candidates and campaigns have been trying to figure out um, better strategies at reaching no-party preference voters. But still, by definition, they're not as connected. Yeah. So, um, so that's so the the lack of choice in that sense, um, where, where voters find themselves, has real implications in terms of our overall turnout numbers. Just the level of engagement in our elections when we have a big chunk of, of folks that are that are participating in lower numbers, and even if you know, even as we talk about these factions or um, whatever <laughs> we want to call them within the party, of course, the reality is, is how much of of that. Um, actually, the everyday voter is aware of, right? Right. right. Yeah, um, and it can swing either way. It can sure. be confusing and turn voters off. It also could be, oh, now I found my slice, right? Like in multi-party systems around the world. Now I found what interests me, but the average voter doesn't necessarily hear all that or doesn't know what to make of it. They're not watching Cal Channel as much as I, I am. Yeah, That's I know. Crazy. It's, it's a little crazy. And the bottom line is, we have le often have less engagement. Um, right. So, well, choice matters. Yeah, Lisa, and, and I mean, they don't know what matters. to do with Just us, Just really right? quickly, because I do, I, I agree with Dan, except I, I do want to emphasize that no party preference, at least among immigrant origin voters, doesn't, isn't necessarily a rejection. It's just people not feeling comfortable enough with the system to be able to pick. And so we appreciate that there's also that part of not, not angry, but just confused. And then, and the fact that the bigger the tent for Democrats, the more confusing it becomes, right? Mm -hmm. Party preference is a heuristic that people use as a shortcut to say, if you're a Democrat, it means you mean these things. If you're a Republican, you meet. So as those things fudge, it becomes much more difficult for voters to understand. And our, our, our stuff is already really complicated. And so just to appreciate it, it just makes it harder and harder for people to know what they can trust in terms of information about who should be the person that they're supporting. Well, do you guys have any sense then, both in terms of how you know what this means for elections and then also for campaigns? Because, OK, so I'm a no party preference voter. Um, you know, Welcome to our party. If you I think it. about it every day of every week. Um, and I think when I, what I see is like very confused mail from campaigns because they try to target me through other means and I've actually talked to people. So for example, 
I have lived in a rent-controlled apartment for 10 years, and I got all this mail during the rent Prop 10 debate as if I was a homeowner. Because, and I talked to one of the consultants, he's like, yeah, well, look at your age, your education level, yep. like your income, like like we they assumed that you. They impute that, but this is what I'm saying about the yeah. data. They they have to impute you. Right. They, you, they don't know anything, so they're going to put and all like, of this And they're like, this will drive down housing you. prices, and I'm like, awesome, maybe I'll buy a, pl-. no. <laughs> no, but, um, so, I mean, what, like, what what are the pitfalls there then? Because it seems like because it's flawed. These are not perfect algorithms, yeah. right? Algorithms, garbage in, garbage out, is the same principle whether it's an algorithm or any other thing. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to see what magazines you buy. They're going to buy third-party marketing data. They're going to see who you live with and whether you live with somebody. So you know, PDI has all of these like Democratic mm-hmm. Plus, Democratic Plus Plus, Demo- you know, all of these right. different ways to try to impute information onto you. And then if it's wrong, it's you either laugh or you think that they're all crazy, right? Yeah. Because they're sending you the wrong thing. I think um, one so of the challenges with that issue. too, though, is you have traditional Republican political consultants and traditional Democratic political consultants speaking to the NPP voter as if they know them as well as those traditional mm-hmm. Republican and Democratic voters. Mm-hmm. They aren't the same. And so there's been some talk lately about whether candidates should begin to hire multiple different political consultants who have expertise and understanding of different voting demographics in order to speak more effectively to this growing no-party preference voter. It's, it's a tricky task, particularly for Republican consultants, because if Republicans are only talking to Republicans, we all know what's going to happen, right? <laughs> it's just going to be more of the same. So they have to learn how to start talking to other people. And traditional Republican political consultants may not be the best ones suited to be able to do that effectively, particularly with that MPP voter. But, but if I can oh. just say, and apologies to all the political consultants in the room, even the Democratic and Republican consultants aren't always good at talking to their own party people. Oh, yeah. Just to say, Fair enough. right? Fair they enough. aren't necessarily yeah. able enough. to have the nuance they need to actually get beyond kind of the the likely voter within their tent. Yeah, and what I wanted to add was, it's just also just stepping back, the the overarching approach, trying to find those likely voters, it's it's an entrenched reality in our political system, right? Campaigns and candidates, um, we've talked about this often, campaigns and candidates use the likely, for the most part, the likely voter model to strategically utilize their resources to, you know, the biggest bang for their buck to reach those people, highest likelihood that when they reach them, they're going to turn out. Um, but that approach, the data is flawed, but that approach also leaves out huge swaths potential of potential voters, right, which in, in our state are more likely to be of color and younger mm-hmm. people, that if they got that connection, particularly if it was in a more thoughtful, more sustained way, which we could talk about too, um, that they will turn out, and much of Lisa's research has shown that um, they will turn out if they are contacted um, in a sustained, meaningful way. But because we, lose, for the most part, use that likely voter model, we're just not even, and actually lots of survey research shows um, the underrepresented groups, um, election in, election out, report not getting, even registered voters report not getting that outreach. And it's a huge lost opportunity, but it's also part of what adds to that underrepresented electorate, right? Which is a The mailboxes are happy, but... They're not. Yeah. Well, I just have to make that point. But to concretize the level that I did a back of the envelope for Latino voters in the state of California, if you add together the unregistered and the folks that aren't between 70 and 100 in in terms of the voting models, so the people who are going to be contacted either by mail or Mm -hmm. it's 80% of Latino voters. Wow. Well, is that outside of what campaigns 
Does that mean that the 2018 turnout is good news then? Because yes, folks, that we went if you bring more people in, more people will be part of those calculations. Yeah, because once people are in, then they're in then they're, they're going to talk to you, right? They're likely to engage. Then, yeah, right. then the campaigns are buying their data. Uh, so, but yeah. it also means we still have a lot of work, work to do. Right. Yes, and we haven't solved the problem because you've got new people coming in all the time. Yeah. Well, right to that point, like how much of when we talk about the changing percentages of the parties, do you, how much of it is people actually switching parties? How much of it is new voters? How much of it is you know like are people moving here? Like, like. Like, did the Republican Party actually see people leave it in the last couple of years, or did people just die? Yes. Uh, I think well, 20 years. <laughs> 20 years. I mean, yeah. time so, horizon has to be longer than that. Yeah, um, it's, 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 the old, yeah, it's, it's the old line, how, how, did, yeah, how did you lose your fortune? And so it's gradually and then all, and all at once. Right, totally. I think you could make the same case here. In 2018, um, married female college-educated voters abandoned the Republican Party in extraordinary numbers and elected a Democratic, uh, and elected a Democratic House of Representatives. I'm not brave enough to predict an outcome of the 2020 election. I gave up on political predictions we in all 2016. Did. <laughs> um, but I would argue that a female candidate, whether Harris or Gillibrand or Warren or Tulsi Gabbard or Amy Klobuchar, starts with a built-in advantage, given both that shift yeah. and that motivation. But it happened gradually and all at once. Mm -hmm. You know, my favorite quote is from Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And for those of us who are old enough to remember in the 1990s when smart Democrats like Bill Clinton and Dianne Feinstein began talking about soccer moms, they were talking about the same, precisely the same demographic. Suburban, suburban voters, soccer moms and soccer dads, who were economically successful, but socially moderate to liberal, who Clinton and other Democrats convinced to deprioritize their economic interests to vote on social and cultural matters, at the same time that smart Democrats like Clinton and Feinstein were moving the soccer parents in one direction. Fewer of you may remember the term NASCAR dad, Republicans began to reach out to NASCAR dads and NASCAR bombs, economically blue-collar, socially conservative voters who shifted. Two quick, quick statistical points, and then I'll shut up. Um, throughout modern history, the single most reliable indicator of partisan voting behavior for years, for decades, was income. The more money you made, the more likely you were to vote Republican. The less money you made, the more likely you were to vote Democrat. And because of that massive trade, the soccer moms for NASCAR dads, in 2004, during the Bush-Kerry election, it's the first time in modern political history in which income was not the primary determinant of partisan voting behavior. What replaced it in 2004 and has articulated since is what's called religiosity. Not your religious faith, but rather the intensity of it and the frequency with which an individual attends a church or synagogue makes them much more likely to vote Republican those who do it on a less frequent basis are much more likely to vote Democrat. I'm not judging either way. Like John Stewart, I, call, I say I'm not that religious, I'm just sort of Jewish. <laughs> but the cultural and social determinants have, have forced and accelerated yeah. that massive trade-off. And in 2018, you saw, frankly, the daughters of those original soccer moms 
turning yeah. the House Democratic. Oh, well, that, kids, I want to get to your eyes. Yeah, yeah I, just oh, sorry, I just wanted to do a quick ending to that, just because, but, but everything you said is true for white voters. And so I think we need to remember, mm-hmm. white women have voted Democratic once in a presidential election since 1948. Only fit, they split 50-50 in 2018. So those women who supported the Democrats are actually women of color. So we need to remember not all women. And beyond that, religiosity also doesn't map on to folks of color. Janelle Wong from Maryland has a wonderful new book on that, that even evangelical Asians and Latinos <coughs> have less conservative social positions mm-hmm. than white events, so even religiosity. So we have to be really much more nuanced about thinking about how all of these different lines map. And the thing that is most aligned with Republican Party identification now is being white. And so mm-hmm. appreciating that race and party intersect in important ways that aren't natural, that are political products, but have real meaningful outcomes. Marisa, can Which I just add one speaks- point quickly to, 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 to address uh, Lisa's statement, because she's exactly right. I didn't intend, I didn't ignore minority voters because they're not a critical piece of the electorate, but because they're not swing voters until the Republican Party becomes more competitive in addressing the concerns of African American, Latino, and Asian Pacific voters, the primary challenge for, for Democratic political strategists is not one of persuasion, but of motivation. So that wasn't to minimize their import, but rather in talking about the context of voters who have his, in recent history been available to both voters. But well, to speak to Lisa's point, yeah. though, that also provides both opportunity and risk for both parties, right? That shows there is opportunity. But back to you know what's happening to the Republican voter, I think it's all three. They are dying, right? If you look at the age demographics of how people are registering, Republican voters are absolutely dying. They are moving, and they are re-registering, or if not re-registering, they are at least voting yeah. differently in their patterns. Uh, Jeff Denham's race, for example, his re-election for Congress, that's the area I live in, excuse me. And it was clear, if you look at his election results in terms of the numbers, Republicans in our community voted against Jeff. And so not only are they dying, moving, and re-registering, but they're even voting differently, many of them who are staying Republicans, at least for now. Mindy? Um, great conversation. The only thing I, I, and I appreciate the amendment, friendly amendment you made. Um, the, the only thing that I would add to it is just the California context. And I think, Lisa, you touched on this earlier, but just in this conversation, um, we can't deny the last 20 years um, and the change over time that we've seen, uh, you know, with regard to the, how particularly Latinos, but um, many Californians have viewed the Republican Party, and a lot of that came out of Proposition 187, which I think we actually haven't mentioned yet today. No. Um, and uh, much of the growth in the Democratic Party um, has been driven, not all of it, but driven by changes in Latino registration, going going more Democrat, mm-hmm. although not also not and mo- Asian American. Well, yes, yeah, I, I want to talk about well, sheer, sheer numbers yeah. in terms of Latinos, but definitely Asian American as well, both together. Yeah. And, um, and Latinos themselves are not a monolithic group. African Americans are more skewed Democratic in terms of their registration, but still you've got a decent percentage of Latinos that are um, NPP. Um, but the, the dynamics that have happened over the last 20 29% years. 29% if we want to be yeah. precise. <laughs> um, 53% Democratic. Um, they've been, yeah, they've been fluctuating a lot, actually. That's just a huge over the change. last, like, three That's elections. Yeah. Um, so uh, that dynamic is part of our history. Um, and it's mm-hmm. part of not just how voters see themselves and potentially how they engage, but also the organizing dynamic in the state. Um, 187 gave us a little bit of a bump in terms of Latino turnout in 94. We 
didn't see a sustained bump after that. Um, we're hoping we're seeing some sort of change now, but you know, turnout disparities stayed roughly the same uh, over the last couple of decades. But what we did see that was sustained was the registration shifts that uh, tremendously impacted the overall um, uh, registration skew of, of California, but also in terms of it created a whole group of uh, particularly young Latinos that ended up becoming right. leadership, right, um, within the Latino community and beyond in California to organize, to mobilize, um, and you know there has been there was some concern the last few years um, before Donald Trump that maybe some of those folks were going to start dying out, and you know where was the next generation coming that because. Um, being mobilized in that context is, is, a, is a very unique experience. But now um, we have Donald Trump um, <laughs> and the Trump effect that you know, potentially is, is going to give us a whole other generation of young people that are going to be out you know, yeah. um, organizing and mobilizing and, and being leaders. So I just wanted to put yeah. that context in. Well, so for me, like having covered 2018 and particularly um, the congressional races, which you know, I'll just note as a journalist, it was so interesting because California historically in my 15 years or so reporting here, like we didn't play in the congressional stuff. It was just like, okay, whatever, that's happening somewhere else. We focus on the governor or this. This year, we went down to Orange County, which I think is a microcosm of a lot of the things we're talking about here. So like to Dan's point, I interviewed several, like, and this is anecdotal, obviously, but several women who said, like, basically, like, moms are coming out of the closet as Democrats, and I heard stories about people who were canvassing and women saying, don't tell my husband, but, like, I'm voting for Katie Porter, you know? And it was so <laughs> fascinating, because, A, can you ever see a man doing that? No. Um, don't tell my wife, you know? Like, <laughs> but... Also, you know, I think it speaks to some of the stuff we're getting at about people who either left the party or are in it but are not as sort of tied to those. But then also within the sort of racial and ethnic makeup there, we've seen, you know, it become a more diverse county. Um, I'm interested to talk to you guys, too, about, like, how generational differences play into this because one thing Paul Mitchell has told me um, is that he really sees a difference, for example, between first-generation Asian-American voting patterns and second-generation, um, which also has to do clearly with, like, what was happening when you immigrated with the Vietnam War and things like that. Um, and everything ties back to Trump right now. He's going to start deporting Vietnamese folks, so that's... Probably not going to be good for Republicans in Orange County, but I mean, yeah. what do you see in that? Like, well, I think again, we really have to think about time horizon. I appreciate Mindy um, bringing out that context of 187. So there are a couple people in this room that have been involved in the in the organizing in Orange County. That organized start, organizing started over 15 years ago, mm -hmm. right? So that didn't just magically no. happen mm -hmm. that Orange County flipped. It has been the product of sustained investment in infrastructure to bring those new young people into the system. But there was a sense that they wouldn't issues. really come out. Yet, like there, like nobody thought that that was a foregone conclusion. Now it was more projecting. I think people, were, but but I guess what I'm saying is these things, people, the moms don't come out of the closet magically by themselves. No, right? absolutely. That's all I'm saying is yeah, that yeah. there's organizing, and so just thinking about differences in voting patterns, immigrant voters who were socialized, who registered during the '90s, socialized under that context of racial threat, still vote at higher rates than mm -hmm. U.S. born voters. So that when you come into the system and what the context is in the system, so the young people who are coming into the system now, we can probably expect to vote at pretty high rates. And so to appreciate that history matters, context matters, but all of those conversations at the doors, the organizing on the ground, the long-term investments yeah. in infrastructures in different parts of the state do have consequences, and it's not just a Trump effect. That's interesting. Can I add a little bit? Yeah. Um, 
So when you think about it, what's really unique right now, uh, well, lots of things that are happening, but when we think about these new voters coming into, into the electorate, we saw a pretty high turnout in 2016, right? We saw a high turnout in 2018. Uh, we're all <laughs> expecting to see probably pretty good turnout well, in 20. High-ish for the United States. Can we just say it's still yes. dismally low? Yes. <laughs> Can we well, just have And I did make that point earlier. We'd want to see higher than 50%, of course, but high right. turnout for what what, what we is. can expect right, uh, at this point. Um, we likely will see a high turnout year uh, in 2020, no matter what your political affiliations, I think we all hope for that. Um, many of the factors that were in play in 20, it's not just Trump, but mm -hmm. um, Trump and the organizing dynamic certainly in play in 2016, 2018, likely in 2020. Um, Trump is gonna be a factor no matter what. Um, that means that we have this unique kind of situation at, at hand, that we could have a whole cohort of voters that typically haven't voted, that now have voted, right, not just in one election because they got galvanized, but typically when we see a bump, the bump goes away. But a sustained bump of sorts. Um, again, presidential is not quite comparable to midterm and so forth, but a sustained bump in the sense that we have higher turnout over more than just one election. Does that make sense? Yeah. That means that that's an opportunity, at least in, as I see it, a really important opportunity and a responsibility that we do, that we, we try to keep those voters sustained. Now, I think they're much more likely to, just by patterns that we've already established that we understand, if they vote in one election, vote again in another election, vote, they're gonna likely continue to vote, but also do the work to make sure that that happens. Yeah. Um, that we don't let this historic opportunity kind of <coughs> go away and that it can't be just about one candidate, right, or one unique set of circumstances, that we make the case Right, as we organize and engage folks about the long-term impacts. And I think many, many new voters are seeing that. It's not just Trump, right, or it's not just whatever the immediate thing. It is an understanding of the importance of participating in our, in our system um, and having a voice and having power and having a say. But, um, but I think definitely in our organizing efforts as we engage folks going forward, it's to make sure that that bigger case um, is made for sustained um, Engagement. Keep that gateway drug going, yeah, that I mean, first we, voting. I mean, how can we possibly lose it? This is, right. Yeah. Well, so. you also hear about like how much more likely people are to vote if their parents do, and if that's something, you know, and just civic engagement in general. Um, I want to get you guys to wait on something, though, too, because one thing we saw in 2018 was a lot of, and not in California, well, a lot of controversy around turnout and suppression, right? So in other states, like Georgia, it was allegations that the GOP was suppressing minority voters. Here, there's a sense among Republicans that all of these no, new voting laws are opening up the door to fraud and you know um, that it's a bad thing, sort of. And I think, I mean, first of all, Kristen, like, isn't that sort of an inherently, um, I don't know, like bad strategy for Republicans? To, absolutely. To think people shouldn't vote. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> right? And, and it's part of the weave of problems that have left Californians feeling disenfranchised by the Republican Party, right? It sends a message, we don't care about you, we don't want you to We don't want you to vote, right? We don't want you to be part of shaping your communities. I mean, who would want to hear that, right? And I remember when Paul Ryan decried California's ballot harvesting law, and we can talk about that, um, but what was the point, right? The law's not going to change, so all he did is double down on the perception that Republicans don't want people to vote. Not helpful, 
not helpful. Now, having said that, there are challenges, and actually some um, former de Democratic members of the legislature, I think, have been the most articulate, albeit more privately, according to get more <laughs> public, about the challenges associated with ballot harvesting in Stanislaus County, uh, in talking with the registrar of voters there. I mean, we were... That was an intense job, you know, being in the 10th Congressional District. It was really tough. And she had people bringing in, one woman brought in 625 ballots. And you do have to wonder, you know, what, what is going on? They, she got one complaint. They would get several calls, but this was the one that was startling to her, of a gentleman um, who called, an elderly man who called and said he felt very harassed. And they said they wanted to come into his house help him with his ballot in his kitchen, give me your ballot and I'll take it down for you. And he just felt very uncomfortable and intimidated. Now, do I believe that happened to the extent where it had a statistically significant outcome on election results? I don't know that I would say that. But do I say it's the best way to build trust in the voting electorate and to ensure fair and objective elections? I wouldn't suggest that either. Um, what I would suggest is decrying it sends a message that's not helpful to the growth of the party. And what I would also say is the Republican Party shouldn't have been surprised. Shouldn't have been surprised. This had been law for well, two they years. They kind of got outgamed. And they and should they have been better prepared. They got yeah. outgamed, outstrategized, outmobilized, and they should have been better prepared. But, Dan, we also just heard that, like, a lot of voters aren't being reached. They aren't being talked to. Mm -hmm. I think one area, um, you know, I actually... I'm generally pretty pleasantly surprised with how much voters seem to, um, like if you look at complicated ballot measures often, like it's like, wow, people actually did the research. But one race where that did not seem to be the case was the US Senate race where Kevin DeLeon beat Dianne Feinstein in places like Del Norte and like Central very Valley. red. And it seemed to me like that was a vote against Feinstein perhaps more than a vote for the author of the sanctuary law. I think that's probably right. He says with some understatement. Um, <laughs> I think what had happened, and it's actually, I think, fairly straightforward, is Californians, Republican and Democrat, have, even if they haven't learned a lot about Dianne Feinstein over the many years she's been in office, they know enough about her to associate her with either a party they like or a party they don't. Mm -hmm. um, Kevin DeLeon, for all of his admirable qualities, does not inspire that same association, positive or negative. So for a relatively low information voter who knows a lot about Dianne Feinstein and doesn't know anything about Kevin DeLeon, yeah. think, okay, um, I know I, a Republicans, a Democrat says, I know I like Dianne Feinstein. I don't know who this DeLeon is, so I'm gonna vote for her. A Republican says, I know this Dianne Feinstein. I've been voting against her since 1990. I don't know who this DeLeon is, so I'll vote for him, but I don't think there was a considered strategic yeah. I uh, think approach there. I think it's more than that. I've been looking at this a lot, and after the returns that are available today, I want to study it some more, but I think it's very reflective of the current political environment in which we're living. So I've born and raised in the San Joaquin Valley. I'm raising my kids in the San Joaquin Valley. We have been a long-term historical vote, the Central Valley, that is, for Dianne Feinstein. She is viewed in our communities as somebody who's pragmatic, somebody who's been good for us on issues related to agriculture and water, somebody who's willing to work with both sides and build consensus to deliver results for Californians. That's been long-term political views of her in the Central Valley. That changed dramatically this year. And Kevin DeLeon was the alternative that people could go to who had less name ID, 
um, people are much more familiar with SB 54 and the sanctuary state than they are familiar with the fact that he was the author of it. That, that's just mm -hmm. not very well known within communities. And Dianne Feinstein, during the Kavanaugh hearings and during many other episodes throughout Congress this year, made a strategic decision. It, now, it didn't hurt her in the end, but made a strategic decision to move leftward in the way she communicates, in the way she carries herself. Now, that may have been a good or bad strategic political decision for her, but the fact is she did that, and it was noticed. Mm -hmm. Um, I heard about it all the time from people in the Central Valley. Like, but what has were, happened to Dianne Feinstein? Yeah. We're going to have to vote for somebody and, else. And, I'll, and, I'll and it shows the political polarization that maybe their short-term gain with for long-term loss. I think, I, I think uh, Marisa, I think Christian's points are, are, are very valid. Um, uh, I will take a backseat to her clearly on her knowledge of Central Valley voters, and there's no question that Feinstein did some positioning. It was worth noting that a candidate who based her campaign in 1990 on her switch in support of the death penalty, for example, last year announced that she had reconsidered, she had reconsidered her decision. I'll just say this, uh, agreeing and admiring with what Kristen has just offered, that if the voters of California had, had precisely the same of information available to them about Kevin DeLeon, as they've developed yeah. over the years about Dianne Feinstein, right. he would have done much better on the left and probably not nearly as well on the right. Well, That's and I right. think to, to my original sort of maybe muddled point, but is that voters in your area were being communicated with a lot because yes. of the congressional races. Yeah. Voters in reliably red places like the northern and, you know, part of the state probably weren't. And so they just were sort of voting a little more blind, perhaps, than anyway. So we're going to open up to questions to reiterate. Um, I'll call on you. Wait till you get the microphone. Um, and this gentleman back there was, was very quick, so. I'm wondering what the panel thinks about which elements of the For the People Act of 2018 are most likely to actually make it out of Congress and be signed into law. I believe that's H.R. 1, that's the, yeah. voting, the voting laws. Yes. <laughs> Isn't the better question, Political which piece of legislation will ever make it out of Congress? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I think I mean, there are lots of things that should be bipartisan and right. should actually be no-brainers, but I, I wonder if in the current context, those things that people do agree on, whether that will be possible and then whether the president would just veto it out of spite. So I, 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 I feel like normal, you know, the, there are lots of things in that bill that I think both sides could probably find common ground on, but I, I'm not sure the current environment mm -hmm. makes it possible for that to happen, at least not in the short term, maybe like in the summer when people stop paying attention. And right now, yeah. Yeah. especially with the 2020 race already starting, but I don't know what other people think. Yeah. Agreed. Um, hi, uh, Kristen. I'm wondering, um, or others, kind of what the, what is the message or policy that you would see that would appeal to to rebuild the Republican Party with uh, either the uh, NPP voters or uh, other existing constituencies or among uh, the core Democratic Party support that would sort of revitalize the Republican Party, in your view? So I don't claim to be the holder of truth on this, but um, what I would suggest I think provides a possible roadmap would be issues surrounding affordability and economic mobility, whether that has to do with housing, whether that has to do with education opportunities, uh, 
certainly income inequality between various regions of the state, but I think if the party could capture the affordable, affordability message and how the policy offerings of the party in control over the last decade or so have increased uh, the cost of housing, have increased income inequality, have increased poverty levels, uh, then there's an opportunity to fill that space with alternative solutions so people can see their cost of living go down and their opportunity to increase their economic opportunities uh, goes up. If, if, so that, if, if, I, if I may, as a, as, a, as, a for, as a former Republican, once again, I think Kristen's exactly right. Housing issues, transportation issues, job creation issues, public safety issues, education, all issues, all provide a potentially fertile turf for the Republican Party in California. But as long as the party is perceived as being uh, uh, so uh, angry and holding so much animosity uh, toward immigrants and particularly toward undocumented immigrants, none of those issues are going to be heard. I'll defer to many others on this point as the token angry white male. But my suspicion is, is a Republican candidate is not going to be held by the voters that we've been talking, heard by the voters we've been talking about on issues of transit, on issues of affordable housing, on issues of school choice, as long as that voter thinks that that politician thinks that that family's voter uh, is less something less than human. That's well, absolutely also, right. In fact, we spent a significant amount of money, we've talked about this before, Marissa, on something we called the California Republican Project figuring out what is wrong with the Republican brand in California. Is there an opportunity to resonate with voters? And it showed on policy issues that opportunity is there. And the fact that the Republicans are letting the, the Democratic caucuses lead right now on issues of housing and stuff is a total failure. But what it showed is the number one problem is Californians think Republicans don't care about them. And until that dynamic changes and you build trust, in the mind of the voters, they're not ready to listen to the policy solutions and offerings that I believe that Republicans have an opportunity to deliver. So they first have to really work on rebuilding trust and demonstrating that we care about people in their communities. Dan's absolutely right about that. That has to be done first, and perhaps simultaneously with the caucuses and the party offering real solutions on issues related to affordability. But I don't, you know, all due respect, I don't think, I think that Republicans like John Cox tried to do that, but he didn't actually offer any solutions. He just talked you about the problem. You can't just talk about it. Right, you have right. to offer solutions, and I think that, you know, offering some of those solutions is going to cost money. That's and right. that's pushing Republicans out of their comfort zone in a way that so far the people who are in elected office in California or trying to be haven't been willing to go out and say, yeah, we need to invest here. To, you know what I mean? Like, I Because, yeah. I mean, I've, I found covering that campaign frustrating for that reason because you, like, you can't just talk about what's broken if you're running to run the biggest state in the nation. You've got to offer some way to fix it. So this was a real problem in the party and the caucuses when we were doing this project is some wanted to argue this is just a messaging problem. This is just a branding problem. And so if we start talking about things differently, then we're going to make a lot of headway and we're going to win elections again. Now, talking about different things differently and messaging and, and using the right language is critical. That's absolutely important. But that in and of itself is insufficient. You also have to have policy substance behind the messages and the, and the rhetoric that you're delivering. Uh, this gentleman in the middle. Oh. I, I was just going to yeah. say, as, as we kind of talk, talked about a little bit earlier, 
it's still within the context of the National Republican Party. Right. So no matter what the California Republican Party does, particularly now with the Trump effect, with Trump in office, and with voters not having um, a lot of time or access to information, um, extraordinarily difficult. It's extraordinarily difficult because of that overarching view of the Republican Party. Yeah. Okay, we have about ten minutes, and I see like five more hands, so we'll move through quick. Yeah. And it's for Kristen. Um, wasn't there a huge debriefing around 2008, 2009, by the Republican Party about why they're losing to a black man? Um, and they came up with it sounds like exactly what you're recommending today, to reach out, look friendly, be inclusive, not be so hostile uh, towards these people who demographically are having more and more of the voting public. So they, they re rejected that then mm -hmm. and did exactly the opposite. And they got a, 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 you know, a white nationalist elected uh, who really hates all those people with some vigor. Uh, other people. So how, why do you expect this to go anywhere? I mean, what you're recommending has already been recommending by a large internal group of Republicans doing this big debriefing of the loss. Yeah, your knowledge is absolutely correct. He's referring to a report that was very substantive that the RNC did showing a path forward for Republicans across the nation. And they've done nothing with it. In fact, they've turned significantly the other direction. And so it is hard to remain optimistic. That's why many of us are considering, do we need to explore something different? Does it need to be a new party or a new movement? Or can we get back to the fundamentals of that report and try to rebuild from ground zero? Okay. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to go in the order I saw the hands come up. So I'm not perfect. I can't see everything at once. Thank you. I'm curious if you have any insights on turnout among voters who requested ballots in languages other than English in 2018, if there's any trends to point to increased turnout among them or anything else. Do you? I didn't look that up last night. That's a good question. You're saying turnout, right? Yeah. Um, I don't have those numbers with me. We have them. Um, the only thing that I would caution is... Um, there, voters that, uh, that are registered um, requesting uh, their ballot materials in another language are not, they're not the population of voters that necessarily need, um, of the entire population of voters that need language assistance. It's very specific. It's those voters that, that knew about it, that specifically are requesting it. Um, so I take a, a, a huge caution when I utilize data like that because it often is misinterpreted by the public because it's, it's just people that are actually choosing choosing to choose it on their, on their form and unaware of it. Does that make sense? But I do have some of the data. I just don't have them with me. They're the um, most savvy of in-language voters. How about that as a way to? Yeah. I'd like to confirm uh, what Kristen said about what happened in District 10. I was one of the thousands of people who went there to canvas. We and hope you all spent a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> for Josh Harder. And uh, we were instructed not only to take absentee ballots, but if the voter hadn't filled it out, to offer to come into the home and quote, help them fill right. out that ballot. And as long as they signed and, it. And the reason why I'd like to mention this is in case there are any political consultants in the room, because I'd like to tell you that was an extremely bad idea. 
So wow. I had like the people, good sense. People did not respond well to that. I didn't say, I didn't do such a thing. It struck me as an absolutely horrible okay. thing to do. But I was canvassing with the people I'd ridden with. They were perfectly willing to do it. <laughs> but I do appreciate you saying that. We need to have a sensitivity. I mean, I have canvassed and, and have had people invite me into their home, but that's very different right. than inviting yourself into their home. Right. Uh, this general, or this woman in the purple right here has been trying, and then we can go. Yeah. You, you've mostly spoken to candidates. What is the changing demographic meaning for initiatives, like what happened with the rent control? Or Oh. I feel like rent control would I be its would. own that thing. That's a really trickier. bad campaign. I think, I think we should just say that failed because it wasn't well, it was not, it it was was not well, well written. It was, yeah. it was not well structured. It was, it was not, not well executed. Yes. Yeah. I think prop, uh, schools and communities first in 2020 will be a much better uh, barometer of, of how demographic change because that's, that's going to basically change Prop 13. And if we manage to do that, as a state, I think Prop 55 is a much better barometer that we, we, we for the first time, you know, well, for the second time, but, but we, you know, Californians voted to tax themselves. That's a big change. If we manage to change Prop 13, I think that speaks to a fundamental shift in, in how the framing of politics in California is being affected by Democrats. I would say that I think initiatives are a really different animal if you yeah. talk to consultants. And some of the things I brought up about, like, how I was targeted, I mean, you... Like, you see these strange bedfellows within initiative campaigns. You, you see strange enemies. And I think that, you know, to the point about the big tent in Sacramento, right. it provides a lot of challenges within a party when you have consultants who are, you know, kind of working on opposite sides than they normally would. I think you're going to see more people start to play in that space, though. Not that they haven't played in that space of special interest, I call it, in the past. But there's an opportunity with initiatives that doesn't currently exist within the candidate election structure. And that is, if you look at a lot of data and reports and analyses, Californians are much more moderate or conservative, for lack of a better word, when it comes to issues than they are with candidates. And so a lot of things that may have been attempted in the legislature before from, say, your moderate Democratic wing or your Republican wing may instead be tried at the ballot now instead of through the legislature. And I would, I would not suggest that's a positive necessarily, but in the absence of an alternative, I think that's where people are going to move. Yeah. Okay. Her and then the gentleman on the back. That will be our last, last two questions. Hi. Um, you've, <clears throat> excuse me, you've, you've spoken to the role of imputation relying on outdated assumptions about voters. UCLA's Lori Frazier-Yokely's um, recent book discusses the increasing racial diversification of, of suburbs, which have been thought of as traditionally white, and she, does, and she projects that this is going to continue. Given that our political assumptions are slow to acknowledge these changes, what do you think are the implications for reaching out to voters in some of the, of the, of the swing and slightly conservative suburban districts? I guess the short answer is the data really need to improve. The data needs to improve. But part of the reason why the data doesn't improve is because nobody asks them to make it better. Well, people ask, but not the campaigns in general. The folks who run campaigns, we have a, a panel later today where we're going to talk about, I mean, the vast majority of people who run campaigns are the same people who've been running campaigns for the last 20 to 30 years, and they have their secret sauce, and they keep doing it over and over again. And I've done work uh, looking at how campaigns are run. I was looking at clean money campaigns across the country in states as different as Maine and Florida, and the political consultants brought in had a white likely voter strategy in Florida. 
right? So, mm -hmm. so I think until we change the orientation and we actually believe we, we need to change the electorate and bring people in rather than treating the electorate as fixed, um, you're not gonna have, those folks are never gonna get called even if they're in the suburbs. And so I think that, that shift on both sides of, of how we do outreach and how we bring people in to the conversation um, that needs to change fundamentally, and to do that, you need better data, but you also need different people asking for the data. Can I see a show of hands how many have looked into the science of anger? So if, if Trump won because we didn't know how angry they were, it, it, turns, it turns one, okay. So it turns out that um, our, our professionals that deal with anger, psychotherapists, were tested for their ability to read anger, they're 0% accurate. After they use a metric, they're 95% accurate. So I, I, I don't know how many other people would have raised their hands, but I, I have studied this. So what I'd suggest to the group um, is I think what we know, not just as researchers, but as, as teachers, as parents, is that underneath most, frightened, underneath most angry people are frightened people. And I think the conversation for another day on a panel with people, these four and somebody much smarter than me, is to talk about how effective political leaders, effective political leaders on both sides have found a way to capitalize on that fear. Once again, I'll come back to the point I made earlier, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders in this regard too have much more in common than I think either one of them would care to agree with. But both motivated and mobilized very aggrieved portions of the electorate on the basis of the anger slash fear that this gentleman alluded to. The challenge going forward, um, not for a post-mortem discussion, but for another, is identifying and supporting those political leaders that instead of leveraging those fears for political gain, um, find the voice uh, to reassure frightened people uh, that those fears can be overcome. And I just though want to name what's underlying the fear because all the studies that came out of 2016 said that Trump voters were middle income, racially resentful whites, right? So Diana Mutz's study, so it wasn't economic anxiety, it was, it was somewhat sexism, but, but if you look at what motivated people's vote was racial resentment and, and fear of change. And so until we address that part, and if you look at 2018, that was successful when Trump brought those fears out again, it was very successful and that's what happened in Florida and that's part, part of what happened in Georgia. So we need to really address those fears of resentment and or the underlying resentment and, and figure out how to address that because otherwise it's not just anger, it's anger in a very particular frame. And then if I may, just really quickly, the, the, <laughs> the flip side also, because I think you were also, Dan, alluding to, correct me, but uh, the fear uh, that folks feel on the other side of the spectrum in terms of voting, um, because of Trump, because of the policies uh, and, and, uh, that he has. And that's really real, right? So that type of fear. Well, right, that's a different, I mean, that's kind of to what you talked about 187 yeah. and the grassroots movement that came out of that, which was initially fear, but became something more hopeful, I would. So Marisa, well, I, I, I have to get off my microphone, so I'd offer this real quick. If you think about two frightened groups of voters, one group of voters that, toward Mindy's point, fears that they are being unjustifiably deprived of their share of the American dream, and another share of equally frightened voters who believe that the American dream that they believed in is being taken away from them. Lisa's point is exactly the right one. You address those fears directly, and you overcome them. And I was just 
making a, a quick yeah. point um, about policy, basically. So for many folks that voted uh, against Trump or came out because of his policies, um, you know, in 2016, it was the fear of what, of the rhetoric that was used and the fear of what might happen. In 2018, it was for many people living with the impact of the policies in their lives and their communities. And so uh, to overcome that actually does really, for those folks, require real policy change and change in. And maybe hope. Yeah, so, yeah. All right, thank you guys. This was awesome.